you must understand that the touch of your hand makes my pulse react. That it's only the thrill of boy meeting girl. Opposites attract. It's physical, only logical. You must try to ignore that it means more than that. That's the first verse of the 1984 hit by Tina Turner. Her hair looked a little like mine. The chorus goes on to state, Oh, what's love got to do with it? Y'all know what you're doing. Got to do with it. What's love but a second hand emotion? What's love got to do with it? You're doing it again. Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? That was her claim to fame in 1984. That's what brought her back on the scene. And the question has resounded over and again, what does love have to do with it? This morning as we look at Revelation chapter 2, we've got two questions and four answers I know that I'm not going to get to the second question. I know that I'm not going to get to the third, uh, the second, third, and fourth answer. So I've got one question and one answer for you out of Revelation chapter 2. What does love have to do with anything? The answer is everything. Read with me. In Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to read the whole of the chapter. I'm not going to get to all of the chapter today. You'll have to come back next week for that second question. But I want to read all of the chapter. So here's what is recorded in Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for uh, for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And of the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are in the, of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, 
The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Who calls herself a prophetess. And is teaching and seducing my servants. To practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold. I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart and will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching You have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him, I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, I bow before you. And God, I ask that as we look at this passage Today, Father, as we ask the question, what does love have to do with it? 
God, you would show us, not just in the Word, everything, but Father, you would show us vividly what love truly has to do with us. God, might we see in 3D, might we see with the eyes of our mind, with the eyes of our heart, with our whole lives, that it truly is everything. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus as well as that of Smyrna, as well as Pergamum and Thyatira, and as we'll see in coming weeks, he wrote to these seven churches that are found in present-day Turkey. And as he wrote to these churches, he wanted to remind them of who he was. He wanted to remind them of some issues that he saw in their lives as individuals and he saw in their lives as a church. Above anything else today, we're walking through the book of Revelation and um, as we come to this passage, my prayer this week has been that God would show you just as he showed those in Ephesus, those in Smyrna, those in Thyatira, those in Pergamum, just as he showed them, hey, I am present in this place, that he is present in this place. He is present in River Bend. And that he sees in River Bend just as he saw in those churches almost 2,000 years ago. And to make it even more personal, that he sees your life, every thought, every moment, every word, every action. And he has written a letter for you and he's written a letter for me. He's written a letter for River Bend. And we're going to look at what he says to these churches as we see all the things that are going about in their day. Jesus wrote to this church and he reminded them, first off in Revelation chapter 2 verse 1, he reminded them of what was taking place in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1 verses 11 through 13, he tells John, write what you see in a book and send it to these seven churches. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then, after that, John says, I turned, in verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. We saw last week this man, Jesus. We saw who he was. We saw what he was doing. He was amongst the churches. We saw attributes and characteristics of who he was is at this moment. He's no longer the baby there in the manger. He's no longer the man suffering servant on the cross. He is the ruling, reigning king of all the universe. And as he unfolds that in those letters in chapter 2 and chapter 3, those characteristics will be reminded and spoken of so that the people in the church in 
the first century and so that the people in River Bend today might be reminded that he is king. Now you and I might not be acting like he is king. And that is one of my prayers also. That as we look at this, you and I would be drawn to him to see him as he is and to see that he commands you and me as sons and daughters of his to live a certain way. So to the folks at Ephesus, here's what he states. The Ephesian church had some commendations. He praised them in verses 2 and 3. He says, I know your works, Ephesus. I know that you're, you're toiling. I know that you have patient endurance. I know how you cannot bear those that are evil and that you've tested even those that call themselves apostles and they're not. And you found them to be false. I know uh, you are enduring patiently and you're bearing up for my name's sake. And I know that you haven't grown weary. How does he know this? Well, he knows this because he's the one in the midst of the seven churches. He, he's the one that is right there in the middle of it. He is the one that is there every single day. He's there in Ephesus as they are living their lives. He sees how they act toward one another. He sees and he hears the words that they speak of toward one another. He sees and hears what the actions are that they speak of of those that don't know him in Ephesus and how they have been witnesses of him all around in the marketplace, at the house, with family, with friends. He knows their works. Think for just a moment. The first time that the Ephesian church heard this letter read, verses 2 and 3, I, I know your works. I know all these commendations. I know that you wait patiently and you're enduring this. I know that you're going through these hard times. I know all of this. Can you just imagine? Have you ever found yourself being praised for something that you weren't expecting? You weren't expecting it and somebody is just unleashing some praise. You deserved it, but you just weren't expecting it at that moment. And just maybe how your countenance was uplifted just a little bit as they said this about you or they said that about you and everything's going great. Now think, for just a moment, the roller coaster that happens between verse 3 and 4. I know all these things about you, and you're doing great. You're testing those who are thinking that they're apostles, but they're not. You're enduring patiently. You're, you're uh, testing those that are false prophets. You're not growing weary. You're continuing on in the journey, even as it's getting harder and harder. But this I have against you. You have lost your first love. A few years ago, Paige and the kids and I found ourselves planning and going on a Disney World vacation and adventure. And the first gate that we walked into that day, Paige had 
all, she's not here today, so I can talk about it. If I want her to know, I'll tell her. Understood? She had the whole vacation planned out to a T. She, she had, we are going to be at the park at 8.58. We are going to walk this direction. We're going to come back to the room. We're going to rest. We are going to have a great time. The first gate we walked in, first gate we walked in, I don't even know what kingdom it was in, but we walked in this gate and she wanted us to go one direction and I took the kids another direction and the first ride that I found was Mount Everest. And I said, we're riding it. And she's like, how bad is it? I said, I don't know. Let's just get on it and see. And so all four of us got on Mount Everest. Mount Everest to its credit, the greatest aspect of Mount Everest is this. You go and you ride this roller coaster. It's a good roller coaster if you like roller coasters. But the greatest thing about it is this. Halfway through, you get up to the pinnacle of it, and then you get to go backwards. I don't know if you've ever ridden a roller coaster and gone backwards. If you ride a roller coaster and you go forwards, you can see what's coming. You can expect the downfall. You can expect the twist, the turn, the jerk. You can expect the loop. But if you're going backwards, oh, that's a new game. Ephesus is being praised. They are being told, here's all the great things that I have about you. And then all of a sudden, without any notice whatsoever, the bottom drops out. Here's what I have against you. Ephesus, you have left. Your first love. That ride threw Paige for such a loop that we didn't do anything on her list for four days. We didn't. It, it, that one ride just threw the whole vacation in utter chaos. To this moment, to this second, she has not let me live that down. All because she was not expecting it. Ephesus hears from their Lord. From their Lord. The one that they have given their lives to. From the one who has stated this. I know your works. I know your deeds. I know that you've done all these great things. All these good things. But here's what I have against you. You have left your first love. Jesus hits this church seemingly out of nowhere with the words, you have left your first love. It means that they have taken their eyes off of the great and they have placed it on the good. The French philosopher Voltaire, this is probably the only time that I'll ever reference him in a sermon, but the French philosopher Voltaire is credited as saying, the enemy of the best is good. Think about that for a second. The enemy of the best is just good. It's not the enemy of the best is the worst. No, the enemy of the best is good. Meaning what? That you and I can fill our lives with so much good that we do not have the best. Jesus is saying to the folks in Ephesus, Hey, Ephesus, you had the very best. At, at first, you had the very best, and your attention and your focus was such that it was on the best. Yet you have left 
your first love. They were still doing some good things. They were still hating evil. They were still enduring, even in the midst of struggle, even in the midst of tribulation that was coming their way. But Christ said to the church at Ephesus, those might be good, but it's not best. Christ says to the church at River Bend today, I want you to look deeply into your heart. I want you to look deeply into your life. I, I have. And I know what's there. What do you think his letter would be to you? What do you think that his letter would be to you as an individual today? If Christ was going to write you a letter similar to that of Ephesus, similar to that of Pergamum, of Thyatira, of Smyrna that we've read, or maybe it's Sardis, Philadelphia, or even that of Laodicea that we will get to in the coming weeks. What do you think he'd write about? Would there be any good things that he would write about? Would there be things like that in Ephesus that he would say, Brian, you are doing well. You are toiling. You are patient in your endurance. He wouldn't have that characteristic, just to let you know. You are, are seeing that there are false teachers and you are not following after them. What would he say to you? Would there be that aspect of your letter that throws you for a loop-de-loop -loop like that of the Ephesian church? In one sense, as you look at your life, this is the greatest moment of your life right now. You're like, yeah, if you would hurry up and hush, it might be. But think about it. it this is the greatest moment of your life. And it's the greatest moment of your life because every moment that has already passed, you can't do anything about it. You can't change. You can't change last night, the outcome of the game that you were watching. You can't change last week, the issue you might have had with the boss, the issue you had with the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the wife, the husband, the kid. You can't change that. It's gone. But this moment, right now, decisions that you make right now will change not just this moment, but it could change the rest of your lives. However many moments that he gives you, however many moments he gives me from this point forward, this moment can change all of those, what you decide to do. This moment, the greatest moment in your life. His name was Conrad. Conrad had two siblings Conrad was 12 years old, and uh, Conrad liked to do what all 12-year-old boys like to do. 
he liked to go down and play in the creek. And he found himself leading his two younger siblings to the creek. And as they were down in the creek and they were playing on the banks of the creek, Conrad took his bow and arrow and went around the bend there in the creek. And he was trying his very best to uh, wound and shoot and kill some fish. He started hearing his brother and his sister arguing back and forth, and it was such a commotion that he um, put his bow and arrow down, and he walked back around the bend, and they were standing on the bank of the creek, and they were yelling at one another as to who saw this first. And they were standing over a rock that was half unearthed there in the creek bed. Well, he took it upon himself to start scratching and pulling and clawing at that rock, and that rock came out of the earth, and that rock was some 17 pounds. He didn't know what it was. He'd never seen it before. They didn't know what it was. They'd never seen it before. And he took that rock up to his house, and he took it and placed it there on the table, and he called his mom in, and she looked at it. And at the end of the day, Dad came in from working, and he looked at it, and none of them had seen that before. They all felt it. They all carried it around the house. They all looked at it. They didn't know what to do with it, so they just used it as a doorstop. And so for two and a half years, this 17-pound yellow rock was a doorstop in the Reed household. Finally, Mr. Reed had to go to Fayetteville, North Carolina on business, and he's like, I don't know, I'll just take this rock with me. And he took the rock and he found a jeweler there in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And they fluxed off some of the piece of that stone and that metal that was there in that rock. And lo and behold, there was a 17-pound gold nugget. It started the first gold rush in North America, in North Carolina. The Reed family, Mr. Reed, was given $3.50 for that 17-pound golden nugget. One-tenth of one percent of its worth. You say, why do you tell me that story at the close of this service? I tell you that story at the close of this message because of this. Are you like the Reeds? you got Christ all around you. You read the books. You listen to K-Love. You, you open His Word periodically. Maybe you're having a tough day, and so you open His Word and you read. You come and you hear and you listen. You sing praises to Him, but you don't know who you have. His worth is so much. is crying out to you. He's calling to you. He is commanding you as King and Lord and Savior, ruler and reigner of your life and of all the universe. Bow down and worship me and me alone. River Bend, don't leave your first love. Brian, don't. Don't try to fill your life with all this other stuff that's good. good and lose the very best many of you here today 
myself included. We chase after the good all week long. Almost three weeks ago, and I close. Almost three weeks ago, I sat in a Ford dealership in Knoxville, Tennessee. I sat there because my truck was broken, but I sat there staring out at the cars as they passed by. And I was reading a book, and I was reading scripture, and not only was my truck broken, but God broke me in a Ford dealership in Knoxville, Tennessee. And he said, Brian, what are you chasing after? Brian, what are you filling your week with? Brian, what are you doing? It's a quiet ride home that next day. There's been moments and there's been hours of just me writing, writing out, all right, Lord, here's what's in my life and here's what I want out of my life. Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you need to take a notepad, just sit down and say, all right, Lord, what needs to get out? Just write it down. Two, three, four. I got down to 20 and I had to stop and cry a little while. I didn't want to give up number 20. You know, God, he wants all. And he has the very best if we'll give him all. Heavenly Father, I bow before you. God, you have written to your church, not just at Ephesus. Father, you have written to your church throughout the generations and throughout the years. And you have called us to yourself because you tell us over and over again that the greatest commandment is to love you with everything that we have. Father, I hear that. Father, I have heard that time and time again. But Father, I'm reminded today afresh and anew. And I pray that we as your people would be reminded of this. Come back. If we've left our first love, Father, come back. Remember those works before, remember that love that we had for you. Repent and come back. God, if there are those that are here that are running down that trail, would you show them and would they obey? Father, if there are those that are here this morning, I pray, Father, if they don't know you, if they've never come to know you, they've heard about you, but they don't know you, they've never surrendered their life to you. Would you show them that? How much you love them and your desire for them, and would they come? The invitation is for each and every one of us today. The invitation is that of obedience. You've heard the word of the Father. Spoken to His children. Would you come and would you respond? We're going to have a time of invitation. 
we're going to stand and we're going to sing whatever He is asking for you. Would you obey? Ma'am, sir, would you obey during this time? Pastor Steve.